The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm really excited about today's show because it's a topic that matters to all of us. Food. We eat it all the time. And today we're going to be talking about why we need some innovations in the food industry and in the way that we look at food in our food systems and how maybe, just maybe, we can make the world a more sustainable place through these food innovations. Our guests today are William Rosenzweig, and he is the executive director and dean of a brand new uh, educational institution that I can't wait to hear about. It's called the Food Business School. And um, we're also going to be talking with Sophie Egan. She's the director of programs and culinary nutrition for the Strategic Innovations Group at the Culinary Institute of America. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Will and Sophie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Will, I'd like to start with you, and I'd like to start with a very broad question. We'll be getting into some specific questions as we go along, but let's start with this one. Why do we need food innovation? Well, we've got some very pressing problems facing both personal health and the health of our planet and environment. Um, On the personal side, we've heard all of the... um, recent news about the skyrocketing level of diabetes and obesity in the global population and the chronic diseases that follow from that, that put people in a position where they're suffering for years and years and they're, they're alive, but unfortunately they're not healthy and they require substantial medical intervention and support. And the cost of that to uh, individuals and society is creates a burden of disease, which is just completely unsustainable um, to the current economic and social systems that we have in place. So that's on the personal side. We know that diet and nutrition are completely linked and are the causes of chronic diseases, cardiovascular disease and diabetes and obesity. And these Diseases can actually be prevented and reversed through diet and nutrition and exercise and lifestyle choices. The second issue is really the way we created our industrial farming system over the last 50 or 60 years has been to produce inexpensive calories for people. Um, This has been driven through, you know, many um, subsidies of, our, of corn and other products that have produced cheap foods, cheap meats, mm-hmm. uh, cheap uh, corn products. Um, and so 
Unfortunately, those um, practices, whether it be factory farming of animal proteins or monoculture of different crops, um, have created great strain also on the environmental systems. Mm -hmm. So we're really at a breaking point, both in terms of personal and planetary health, and the time is now. I'd say the third thing of why we need innovations, because we now have, particularly in the United States, we have a younger generation of people, I'd say we call them millennial generation for now, that are keenly interested in food, both from a curiosity and social stand, standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also embracing food really as a movement, as people want to apply themselves in meaningful ways in their lives and careers. Food has become a uniquely um, exciting and attractive area for entrepreneurship and innovation. And that's why the Culinary Institute of America has created a new graduate division called the Food Business School to address Mm -hmm. that growing need and interest. I'm so excited to learn more about that, and we will in just a few moments. Sophie, I'd like to go to you. You know, so often when we talk about sustainability issues on Go Green Radio, our guests tend to focus a lot on public policymakers, uh, politicians, and that group of, of folks. But I'd like for you to help us understand the Culinary Institute of America's vision for the role that chefs and food industry professionals can play in making the world more sustainable. Absolutely. So as Will mentioned, food choices have a huge impact on our health and environment. And the CIA feels that uh, the Culinary Institute of America, shorthand the CIA, uh, the single most <laughs> yeah, important country. On that point, I just have to say, Sophie, really quick, that, that was a funny thing that you said there because when we were prepping for this show, I got a little note that I'm being followed by the CIA on Twitter. And I was like, Talk on it. what did I do? Big brother. And then I realized it wasn't that CIA. It was the Culinary Institute <laughs> we have, we of America. We have to make that distinction. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. We, we <laughs> so like puns as well. So we joke that we work with the FBI, the Food and Beverage Institute as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm sorry Many for interrupting. You, you go right ahead. <laughs> sure. So, uh, the, the food service industry, uh, you know, it's it estimated at $710 billion. And the single most con- important contribution the industry can make toward environmental sustainability is to reduce the amount of red meat on menus. This also means a shift toward healthy plant-based foods and proteins. So to give you an example, research has shown that lentils, for example, produce the least amount of greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of product for any of the common types of protein. It's about a tenth of that of beef. So that's a starting point, but we don't consume very many lentils per person per year. So mm-hmm. the CIA's vision is that it, it falls to the chef to be the bridge between the evidence and the eating to translate the science into an inspiring dish that someone would actually want to eat and would feel good about paying for at a restaurant. So in addition to educating food service professionals through a variety of conferences and retreats that we hold, As a culinary college, we train our students to recognize and deeply understand the additional responsibility they have as chefs to be informed environmental stewards. One of the ways we do this is through our farm-to-table concentration, and that's available for our bachelor students. They have the opportunity to work on uh, the farm at the Culinary Institute of America's campus in Napa Valley, and they they actually design menus around what they grow and harvest uh, for our in-campus on-campus restaurant, the conservatory. Oh, wow. 
They learned about topics like sustainable sourcing um, and using ingredients responsibly and thoughtfully. That is really cool. I I didn't know that 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 program existed. That is really neat um, to let them see the entire food cycle and system. That's really cool. Exactly. Yeah. Will, you're the dean of the Food Business School, which is brand new. And I'd love for you to tell us about the premise of that the, the beginning of that organization and the educational philosophy around the Food Business School. Sure. Um, well, as, as Sophie mentioned, you know, the Culinary Institute of America has been uh, uh, around for 60 years. It's an accredited college, and it grants both bachelor's and uh, associate degrees. And increasingly, um, the student population there and at other uh, colleges and universities around the world, students are very interested in not just um, getting prepared for jobs, but actually starting companies and becoming company owners. And Mm -hmm. we've seen a steady increase in this over the last decade. Um, The entrepreneurship programs at various Uh, colleges and graduate schools, business schools, has also grown dramatically. I've had the good fortune of being on the faculty at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley for about the last 15 years, teaching social entrepreneurship and other venture development courses. And it's just been fascinating to watch the, the increase in this field. So the Food Business School has really been set up to address this growing need that people have to learn how to start businesses and actualize innovations in the marketplace. And um, it comes at a time when education is also ripe for reinvention and disruption because, Mm -hmm. as you might know, Jill, the, the cost of college and graduate school has skyrocketed. The United States has a trillion-dollar student debt, which is mm-hmm. going to just be, people fear, the next giant mortgage crisis. Mm-hmm. So we've created, a, unfortunately, uh, an educational system that is also not sustainable. So if you put together an unsustainable food system and an unsustainable educational system, you get a huge opportunity for an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so for the CIA, which I think has uh, been you know quite astute to perceive uh, these needs. They're also nimble enough to um, get going in a new direction. So this um, new initiative is a great way to engage both uh, future leaders and current leaders in this challenge to reinvent the food system. I love it because I'll tell you, I mean, you're hitting so close to home for me. My daughter's actually graduating from college uh, in a couple of months, and she's been studying business with a minor in entrepreneurship. And, and, and she and so many of her classmates are looking at, you know, their future and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be just one of those people who waits to go and get a job. I'm going to create my job. And the entrepreneurial spirit, of course, I live near, you know, Silicon Valley, and it's so palatable around here, but I think it is something that this generation is is taking very seriously. And I'm so happy to hear that you guys have created this educational opportunity for those who want to explore that in the food industry. And Sophie, I know well, we that you... Talk- oh, go right ahead, Will. I was going to say, Joe, we talked to a lot of people just like your daughter 
And Mm -hmm. what they told us was exactly what she said. And they also said, I'm not sure, I'm really interested in business, but I'm not sure I want to go do a two-year master's of business administration and get an MBA. Mm -hmm. I'd rather get to work building my network, working on this the challenge that I'm particularly interested in solving and learning the process of entrepreneurship. So Mm -hmm. what we've created is a program that's like a, um, you know, a fast on-ramp into entrepreneurship and innovation where people get to develop entrepreneurial skill sets and learn innovation process and develop their entrepreneurial mindset. And then they get to practice in an action and experience-based educational process to to um, experiment and build a company. And it might not be the company of their life, but mm-hmm. what I perceive now, and you might see this in Silicon Valley too, Jill, is that a lot of people go out and start a company without any prepar- – try to start a company without preparation. Yes. Uh, they raise money from their friends and family, and it ends up being a very expensive education <laughs> in the long run, <laughs> even more yes. expensive than an MBA. But this program is going to actually be perfect for a young future leader who wants to get started to create their own job and impact, most importantly, to generate impact in society. I love that. I mean, I, I went to the University of Illinois myself, and the, the education that I received from that, that land-grant university was so pragmatic. It was very much, you know, this is what you need to know in order to get started right away when you graduate. And I love that you're doing that. And And tell me if I'm wrong, but doesn't the Food Business School also offer online courses so that, you know, no matter where students are geographically, they're going to be able to take advantage of this? Well, exactly. And I think that's part of this reinvention of education is that we're going to be doing online, in-person, and what we call hybrid education. It's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, The CIA and Food Business School actually have four beautiful campuses around the world, and we'll use those when appropriate, but we won't be limited to those campuses. Secondly, entrepreneurship and new business creation starts at the local level. And this Mm -hmm. is also why it's so perfect for food systems innovation, because food systems innovation is also going to happen most predominantly at the local level. So our online courses are going to enable people who want to enter the food industry to get up to speed quickly um, and dynamically. The first couple courses we're we're offering online, uh, the first one is going to be called reimagine food and your role in the food industry. So this will introduce young leaders to the big challenges, the grand challenges of food, and some of the solutions that entrepreneurs are pursuing. And it'll also help people think about designing their own life and career in the food industry. And the the second course we're working on is called Developing Your Moral Compass in the Food Mm. Industry. And this is... Oh, this is about integrating ethics and moral and social responsibility and environmental stewardship and sustainability into the core curriculum of what Food Business School stands for. And this is also a change from traditional business schools. You know, even a place as progressive as UC Berkeley or Stanford, who have strong cultures of social innovation and environmental stewardship, 
those courses that pertain to those topics are outside the core curriculum. You know, you have to take the, the, right. the course in entrepreneurship at Berkeley doesn't include um, the ethics of corporate social responsibility and environmental responsibility. You have to take a separate course in that. Well, what's different about food business school is that thinking, that ethos, those values are integral. They're part of the DNA of the pedagogy and curriculum of the school. Something I that love makes it. it very, very different. And that something is something that your daughter will probably find quite, you know, appealing. I, I think so. And and actually, you know, I can see her <laughs> fitting right into what you're what you're looking at but i think a lot of other people will be as well I- i'm so excited to keep talking about this but we've got to take a quick commercial break but don't go away folks we've got much more with will and sophie right after this news opinion your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up on today's topic. We're talking about the need for food innovation, and we're talking with two um, wonderful guests who are talking to us about what the Culinary Institute of America and the new Food Business School are doing to address 
the need to educate food industry professionals, chefs, food entrepreneurs on how to bring about sustainability in their local area and around the world through food innovation. Sophie, I'd like to start this segment with you. Let's talk about the Menus of Change initiative. I'd love for you to give us an overview of what it is, who's involved, and why this initiative is so unique. Absolutely. Uh, I'm the program director, so I never get tired of talking about menus of change. It's the business of healthy, sustainable, delicious food choices. It's an initiative co-presented by the Culinary Institute of America and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It aims to connect chefs with the best evidence-based research in the nutrition and environment fields so that they can be the most effective change makers possible. Specifically, we offer culinary strategies and guidance to the food service industry to make their menus healthier and their sourcing more sustainable. We do this through digital resources that are available on our website, menusofchange.org, through our 24 principles of healthy, sustainable menus, through an annual report that actually includes an annual dashboard that rates the industry on how it's doing in a variety of indicators, and through our leadership summit. And this year, it takes place at uh, the Culinary Institute of America's brand new conference center at our Hyde Park campus in New York. And that's June 17th to 19th. Registration is still open for those interested in attending. Mm-hmm. And as far as the who, Menus of Change is supported by two extraordinary advisory councils. Our Scientific and Technical Advisory Council is a group of academic leaders with expertise in nutrition, public health, agriculture, and the environment. And that council is chaired by Walter Willett, Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition, as well as Chairman of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. Our Sustainable Business Leadership Council consists of leading chefs, food and food service executives, entrepreneurs, social innovators, and that's shared by Arlen Wasserman, who's the principal and founder of Changing Taste. He's an expert on global supply chains and most recently led Sodexo's sustainability effort. And actually, Will uh, Rosenzweig was, is a member of that council, and he's been with Menus of Change from the beginning, uh, really as one of the founding leaders. So what really differentiates Menus of Change is that the chef is at the center. It is a culinary-driven initiative leveraging culinary insights and strategies tied together with evidence-based principles. What's also unique about it is that it's at the intersection of sustainability, culinary, and health, and developing innovative business strategies to transform the industry at that intersection. I'll share one quick, very inspiring example recently, which is that Compass Group USA, the leading food service company, announced actually in February a commitment to four menus of change principles. Um, One of them, for example, is drawing inspiration from global cuisines to increase fruits and vegetables on menus. Mm-hmm. And Compass will be measuring its progress year over year and applying this commitment across its business portfolio. So we'll see this change in museums and sports arenas, schools and corporate cafes. So having built a really strong foundation for menus of change, now in this third year, we are really excited to be seeing some tremendous impact in the industry. That's so exciting. And what I love about, you know, when I was researching, you know, for the show, I, I love to see that... This is not just another echo chamber of sort of a a silo uh, approach of, you know, we're foodies and, you know, we're going to study food. It's so much more than that. You've got people who are experts in, you know, 
making a profit on these lofty mm-hmm. ideas. I mean, you've got the business side of it covered as well so that you're not just coming up with great ideas. You're coming up with great ideas that actually can succeed in the marketplace. And that's so smart. And Will, I know that you've done this over and over again in your your own life. I mean, you've been the co-founder and CEO of the Republic of Tea, Senior Vice President of Odwalla Juice. Um, you've been an investor in companies that have helped uh, companies we all know, Stonyfield Farms and Leapfrog, just to name a few, succeed. And so for food industry professionals who you know, might be wavering on whether or not to get on board with this idea of sustainable menus because they're concerned that the the market share is too narrow, that this is just for, you know, affluent urbanites and, and not something that's truly possible industry-wide. What do you say to them? How do you convince them to get on board if they might be worried that the market share just isn't there for something that might be considered trendy for these sustainable menus? Well, honestly, Jill, I had the good pleasure of working with many of the largest um, food companies in the world over the last uh, decade or so, and I don't see anyone left uh, who's a doubter. There are no skeptics about this. We have reached a tipping point, and um, it's a combination of uh, data, cultural uh, appetite, and um, personal experience. Um, I think that we're getting to a point where uh, transparency, particularly in supply chain and environment, um, the presence now of mobile technology, which is not, you know, w- which is widely distributed across the population, despite you know economic uh, variation. Um, th- this access to data and information. If you look at, you know, just look at how our lives have changed with um, being able to get information about the products that we and are interested in now. Um, this is just completely revolutionary and transformational. So big companies that used to uh, be comfortable saying, we're the experts, we're the brand, uh, have now seen the, the playing field level, uh, you know, a consumer complaint about a product uh, or a bad experience can fly around the world in 24 hours and mobilize a group of consumers who can take collective action that can have meaningful, you know, impact on the value of a company. And Mm -hmm. so I think leaders are humbled by this. I think they're challenged. And um, I think that we're, you know, in a revolution about companies need to take more responsibility than just providing a profit to their shareholders. And as you well, mentioned, there's some – I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, and I want you to, to dive in a little bit deeper on this issue of supply chain and resiliency and transparency because I really do think that is the crux of our quest for sustainability. And, and and I might be a little biased there. This is pillow talk in my house because my husband is a supply chain professional. But how do you guys at the Menus for Change initiative track and score progress in that area? I really feel like that's important. Sophie, why don't you take that? Um, so we have, uh, as I mentioned, an annual um, report. And as part of that, it's a dashboard uh, that rates industry progress on a variety of uh, factors that, such as climate change, water sustainability, animal welfare, and supply chain resiliency and transparency is one of them. 
Um, and <clears throat> this is an area that, unfortunately, uh, I should back up for a moment, our issue briefs are written by um, our advisory council members, and they really are experts in these different um, fields that were or, or aspects of the industry that we're rating. Um, so our expert on, on this uh, has sort of unfortunately seen that in the last several years, there really hasn't been much change in this area, or as much as we'd like to see. Um, the food supply chains remain vulnerable to uh, often fraud and contamination, and we really need more traceability information um, to get to, I think, the level um, of resiliency and transparency that consumers are really demanding. Mm-hmm. And how do you see that happening? Is it going to be through technology or uh, software? Or is it going to be through supply chain professionals? How do you see that it's occurring? Really, Jill, it's, a, it's going to be through systems change. And I think, you know, this is uh, the time. And, th- again, this goes back to, I think, the pedagogy and the curricula design of food business school is that we have to teach people how to think and act and orchestrate systems. We've been very accustomed to... Um, developing fields of expertise, which are very deep and narrow, and uh, people tend to develop a siloed view of a, a, a world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the food system is such a wonderful illustration of how many different disciplines, many different um, industries, many different uh, technical realms have to interact to create a um, successful, thriving, and as you said, resilient um, place uh, to create the food that that feeds us. It involves, mm-hmm. you know, we we talk about the last, you know, the last mile of the supply chain or the last six inches is, you know, where the CIA has the greatest expertise. It's from the menu to the fork to the mouth. Mm-hmm. But starting way back there, we start with seed and soil and and farmers and everything in between, all the resources um, we need, all the technologies we need to get from, you know, from seed to sure. uh, to our, our sure. craveability. So we have to um, be able to teach people how to interact and intervene in systems. Um, Absolutely. Meadows you know, wrote a very famous paper about how to leverage, you know, how to find the leverage points in a system. And this is what the new curricula of the future is. It's not just to train somebody to be a big data engineer or to be a farmer or to be a winemaker. It's really to understand the interactivity of all the dimensions of the system. And Mm -hmm. so in terms of solutions, what's very interesting is so I'm an entrepreneur Sophie's trained as a public health professional. We have people trained as chefs. We have people trained as engineers. We have farmers. We're all working together now, you know, in a way that we can deliver change at scale to create enormous impact. Absolutely. And, and I love of- talking about that. And I would think, you know, one of the things before we go to a quick commercial break that, that I can see is, is teaching food industry professionals to be just as sassy as consumers. You know, the power of the purse is strong. And in as much as we teach consumers to say, I don't want you know, uh, my beverages to come in a non-recyclable container. We can say to chefs, I don't want 
produce that has pesticides on it. I don't want meat that comes from a confined animal feed operation. I won't buy it and band together and use the power of the purse. We've got to take a quick commercial break, folks, but don't go away. Much, much more when Go Go Green Radio continues right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up real quick. We're talking about food innovation. And our guests today are Will Rosenweig and Sophie Egan. And we're talking about uh, some innovations happening with the Culinary Institute of America and subsequently the Food Business School that has just formed and a new initiative that has some tremendous thinkers involved. It's called Menus of Change, and you can find it at menusofchange.org. Will, you know, reducing the consumption of red meat was mentioned quite a bit in the 2014 annual report that's on the website. I know the, the 2015 annual report will be coming out at your summit in June in Hyde Park, but just in looking at the 2014 report, red meat came up in many different categories. And I'd like for you to talk to us about why reducing the consumption of red meat is such a hot topic. Well, it's interesting. We've developed uh, habits around our diet, and we've come up with this notion that having a big piece of protein accompanied by some vegetables constitutes uh, a meal, uh, uh, a successful meal. And if we go to most restaurants, 
even still around the world, um, particularly Western countries, we see a piece of meat, a breast of chicken, a steak, uh, a pork cutlet in the middle of the plate, surrounded by some potatoes, perhaps, and, you know, if we're lucky, something green or orange, <laughs> like carrots or beans. And, you know, the proportion of that is that predominantly people have associated value of being um, satisfied and filled up and fed with a big piece of meat in the middle of the, the plate. So we've mm -hmm. become very accustomed to that. Somehow we thought that that was, uh, you know, good for us, easy for us, convenient for us, and cost-effective for us. But, it, but it turns out the costs actually associated with producing red meat, um, both to, from a health perspective and from an environmental ex perspective, are just extraordinary. And in the world of sustainability, we talk about externalities as costs that are not actually incorporated into the cost of a product. So it turns out red meat has just an amazing set of external costs which aren't factored in. So you take a hamburger patty, um, you're paying for a small portion of what the actual cost to produce that from an environmental perspective. There's methane gas that cows produce that we've heard so much about that has, you know, dire kind of environmental consequences. Mm -hmm. We've got the amount of water and grain that animals have to eat to produce uh, a small amount of finished product that actually ends up... Uh, as a main course, um, and there's an enormous amount of water that's actually also involved in producing uh, red meat products. That's just the environmental part of it. Probably most um, perplexing is the, uh, you know, the impact that animal fats uh, can have on, you know, our hearts and our circulatory systems. Mm -hmm. And while we um, do need protein. It, it's also being shown now that um, the amounts of protein that we think we need have been grossly exaggerated. And some of the work that's being done at Harvard is uh, focused on helping people reset their kinds of expectations of what, how much protein and what kinds of protein are necessary. So one of the key menus of change initiatives is to uh, – Make move meat, not, not to replace or eliminate meat, but move meat to being just one of an integral number of um, uh, parts of the dish, not the, not the main you know, course, mm -hmm. um, and also to reduce uh, animal protein overall. And there are many sources of um, plant-based proteins, as Sophie mentioned lentils before, um, that are wonderfully delicious. Another thing that is that chefs are doing that I find intriguing is they're using mushrooms uh, mixed in with meat products to produce hamburgers that are actually more tasty than all beef burgers. Hmm. And if you do a blind test, you, you'll actually be fascinated. You say, "Oh, I prefer this one," but we have to overcome sort of the uh, intellectual and emotional. Uh, attachments to thinking that a hundred percent all beef patty on a sesame seed bun is the <laughs> best thing, you know, for my taste buds. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of behavioral science and behavioral economics. This is another discipline that's very much involved in systems change that's coming part of this kind of red meat debate. 
Mm-hmm. Sophie, in the report, you have the dashboard that you mentioned, which I think is just great. It's a great visual. It's pithy. And then you can read more about the various issues you know, throughout the report. But I love the dashboard. And three of the issues on the report's dashboard kind of converge around animals. And I think this would be a good time to talk about how food industry professionals can impact these areas. And the three issues that I'm thinking about on the dashboard are um, antibiotic use in livestock, animal welfare, and greenhouse gas emissions associated with various forms of protein. So talk to us about those issues and what menus of change is looking at to, to well, to change in the food industry in these, these three issues. Absolutely. These three issues are absolutely critical. And as Will mentioned, uh, a lot of this is behavioral change. Um, but And I would add it, it's cultural change. And Chefs today are, are really cultural icons. They have tremendous influence when it comes to changing social norms. And those include the social issue of how animals are raised and how we feel about how animals are raised. Uh, regarding the first two, antibiotics and animal welfare, uh, one of the best ways that chefs can impact this arena is uh, by supporting producers who do the right thing. So farmers and ranchers who don't administer antibiotics to healthy animals um, and don't use practices like gestation crates that prevent pregnant and nursing cells from being able to to move in their cages. Um, In December, Panera Bread announced that all of its pork will be antibiotic-free, and it has already been serving antibiotic-free chicken and turkey, um, and its pork will also only come from farms that don't use gestation crates uh, on pregnant cells. So efforts like these create demand for antibiotic-free, humanely raised meat, and and they can really force producers to change the way they operate. When it comes to proteins and greenhouse gas emissions, um, chefs also have a role to play in changing social norms, and and they can do that through techniques and inspiring menus. Um, To go back to the lentil lentil example, uh, there are, as we mentioned, clear differences in environmental impacts, and yet we we kind of under-consume lentils uh, as a country. To me, this shows we just don't really know what to do with lentils to, to make them irresistible, to make them feel not like something we should eat but actually want to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, so this represents, I think, an example of a fantastic opportunity for chefs to come in and on a cultural level really elevate lentils along with other plant-based foods and plant protein proteins from supporting roles to stars on the plate. So mm-hmm. to present legumes and lentils and fruits and vegetables in new, delicious, intriguing ways so that over time, plant-based foods gain higher stature in our society and represent a larger proportion of our overall diet. I love it. And then what about animal welfare? Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that's where I was mentioning that um, it's, it's similar often um, with you know, who, which producers chefs support. So uh, I mentioned, um, you know, if, if, if an enormous, if a uh, high-volume chain like Panera Bread, um, you know, if they announce that all their pork will only come from farms that don't use gestation crates for their, um, for all their pork, uh, for their pigs, that's, that represents enormous buying power in, in, in shifting um, the way that producers operate. So, um, it's really about who chefs are supporting, um, which uh, farmers and, and the ways that they choose to treat the animals um, that go into the meat on these different um, chefs' menus. Well, let me ask you this, Sophie, because, you know, on the one hand, you've got chefs and you've got restaurants 
you know, that, that you're looking at. But what about grocery tra- chains? Let's say that a large grocery chain were to say the same thing that Panera Bread said. We're not going to buy pork, you know, unless, you know, these conditions for the animals are, are held. Then you're talking about massive buying power. Are you guys working in that arena, the grocery chains? You know, it's, it's an a, a incredibly important area. It, we tend to really focus on food service. So the, the way that we intersect with grocery chains are, are through the increasing reliance of consumers on prepared food mm-hmm. in, in grocery stores. You know, in some, we joke in some towns around the U.S., the, the deli is the best restaurant in town uh, at the <laughs> local grocery store, you know. So that's an area that we really impact. In, and we do also hope, I think, um, sort of indirectly, uh, since we don't work as much on the retail side, we do hope that indirectly um, these, these sort of shifts in, in what's normal and expected and um, uh, conventional on a larger scale and not just on the fine dining front to table scale. Um, we hope that can kind of create ripple effects that, that will inevitably impact um, retail side as well. Wonderful. You know, Will, we're talking about things like increasing the amount of fruits and vegetables on the plate, but part of the issue with that is increasing the supply of those items. You know, it's no secret to anyone who goes grocery shopping that, you know, you're going to end up spending quite a bit per calorie in the fruits and vegetables aisle as opposed to the crackers and cookie aisle. You know, I mean, it's just um, one of those things where because we only have so much of our uh, agricultural land planted with fruits and vegetables um, that we're able to offer a certain amount of supply. And in the 2014 annual report that Menus of Change has up on its website, uh, as a Northern Californian myself, there were a couple things that really stood out to me, and I'd like for you to explain them. Um, you know, we were talking about fruit and vegetable consumption. The report notes that 90% of American farmland is planted with commodities like corn and soybeans instead of fruits and vegetables, and that the lion's share of produce is grown in California, which, of course, is in the midst of one of the most severe droughts on record. Talk to us about this issue and what the Food Business School and the Culinary Institute of America, what, what you're doing to deal with that issue. Well, again, it's about um, both helping to influence uh, supply, and it's also um, helping to educate people about demand. And it's challenging because we have deeply uh, enculturated habits and preferences, and um, you know, even culturally, it's fascinating that you know, in the United States, what what we're comfortable eating, what parts of an animal or a, uh, you know, vegetable we eat here relative to what other people in other cultures find to be a delicacy. You know, for instance, um, you know, we don't eat a lot of eyes, wings, and feet and things of animals, and in other places of the world they do. And I think that, um, you know, we're just in the course of re-examining and you know, now that we have a global culture, uh, looking at uh, our own kind of habits and places. So what, you know, what we're doing uh, about this is we're, you know, we're taking a step back. We're trying to gather the best practices uh, from around the world. Uh, There's a lot of focus now on food waste 
you know, as you mentioned, fruits and vegetables. When you get to the store, only a fraction of the fruits and vegetables that are produced actually make it to the grocery store because they have to achieve some kind of cosmetic um, you know, level of mm-hmm. uh, attractiveness and acceptance. And we're working now on how do we um, you know, make use of those products that don't, you know, that are that are wasted, that are actually just fine from a nutritional or taste perspective. Um, there's some interesting experiments going on. One is um, a, you know, a leading uh, chef named Dan Barber, who uh, has a restaurants in New York, is putting up a pop-up restaurant this month in New York called Waste Ed Ed Capital Ed at the end to showcase um, the sort of culinary, both culinary artistry and supply chain innovation around making menus from products that are normally wasted and thrown away in, in the process of a restaurant's operations. And this is a, you know, this to me is a great example of an innovation that is both um, a great experiment for a leading institution and it's also an opportunity for the public to get exposed to a whole new way of thinking and experience, thinking about and experiencing food. So what's fascinating to me is, you know, in the past, um, that might have been done by, you know, somebody that was, you know, not known or didn't have a profile. But mm-hmm. now we're coming into an era where this, this uh, food experimentation and innovation and um, entrepreneurial endeavor is um, welcomed and celebrated. And I find it fascinating that somebody would close their regular restaurant for a month and try what's called a pop-up restaurant like this to experiment and see if there'd be actually a business model and a following and a market mm-hmm. um, to create a new kind of restaurant. So, th- you know, we're actually doing a course at Food Business School um, later this spring called Pop Up Your Next Restaurant. And we're going to be working with chefs and operators for them to start rethinking ways that they can create new and different and healthy and sustainable um, solutions through their restaurant, food service, mobile food delivery, you know, businesses. Mm-hmm. Boy, and if you could get Rachel Ray and the Barefoot Contessa on board, then woof, you'd have some star power behind that mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we look at is there is a reason why, as the report notes, that 90% of American farmland is planted with corn and soybeans. And it's a public policy reason. <laughs> and, Will, I know that part of the goal of Menus of Change uh, is influencing public policy. Um, a lot of people don't realize... You uh, my kids are my younger two are teenagers, and uh, they always kind of cringe when they ask me a question about these kinds of things because they know I know the answers, but they don't want to hear the full like soapbox version of it. But they ask me because you know, they love fruit, and they said, "Why is it so much more expensive?" Because I'll say that was you know five dollars of fruit that you guys just you know ate you know after school or whatever and they say why is it so much more expensive than crackers or cookies and i said two words government subsidization and they were like okay stop there mom get off the soapbox but it's truly you know there are public policy issues behind 
the prices we pay for certain kinds of food. And Will, I'm just wondering how you envision the Menus of Change initiative making a substantive difference in food-related public policy. Well, Jill, I think, you know, we have to be uh, persistent and, you know, committed to long-term change policies um, and, you know, the way our government is set up. Things change slowly, and they change slowly for reasons, because things that change slow are more stable. And, you know, we have a fairly stable society right now compared to some other places. So I think that um, I do think policies are already changing. I have frequent conversations with people at the USDA. There's a lot of really good people at the USDA who are working on food hubs and rural uh, food systems and working with smallholder farms in in a completely unprecedented way. I mean, we have both organic and smallholder farm um, education and development and loan programs that we never had before. Uh, All of these things, uh, again, policy will change in concert with with taste. Policy changes slowly because there are many incumbent interests with huge self-interests that don't want the policies to change, and they have much greater resources to influence lawmakers Um, at this point. But as I said earlier, I think that by uh, both uh, equipping the tastemakers, that's what uh, Menus of Change does, equipping tastemakers, the leading purveyors of food service in the country and world, to lead the way to operationalize ideas to produce healthier and more sustainable meals, we're going to increase the need and demand for those meals, and mm-hmm. subsequently, we're going to have more influence on the policies that support those needs. Mm-hmm. So I just think that, again, when I, when I talk to young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs tend to disregard policy. They go ahead and they work with the system as uh, it is, and they innovate in around and with it. And, you know, every now and then, a wave of... Um, policy change or cultural change comes and lifts uh, that industry to new heights. And that's really what happened with the natural and organic industry over the last 20, 25 years. You know, Mm -hmm. in 1990, when I got in it, it was just kind of a fringe uh, activity for, you know, hippies and vegetarians. And now Mm -hmm. it's absolutely mainstream. I mean, Walmart is the largest purveyor of organic food in the country now. And because of that, you're going to see policies change. You're going to see supply chains change. So I think, you know, I think it's all happening. I do think we get hung up uh, between, you know, conventional produce and organic produce. And I heard Mark Bittman from the New York Times speak the other day, and he made a point, you know, he said, people just want to know the truth about their food. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they really want to know what it is they're getting where it came from, how it was grown, um, is it safe, is it good for me? They just want to know that. And unfortunately, we have a system that doesn't really provide that information yet, but it's moving in that direction. It is, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm seeing, though, because I also work with you know, some social justice and environmental justice groups and issues, is that you know, the, the people who are most visible are tend to be more affluent than 
the millions of invisible folks who don't even know to ask those questions, who are living so scarcely that, you know, they're, they're, um, very limited by what they can even get to in terms of food at a local bodega versus, you know, multiple, you know, restaurants and, and food chains, you know, around them and in grocery stores around them. And so, you know, my hope is that it doesn't take too, too long for these initiatives to trickle down to the folks who tend to be having the most trouble getting to healthy, sustainable food, the ones who are burdened the most with some of the health issues related to poor eating choices and, and actually poor food options. I mean, it's not just about choices, but also what's even available. And so I'm oh, really two, excited two, about what you guys are yeah. doing. Um, we are I about to, to jump in, Jill, and tell you two weeks ago, the Food Business School hosted a hackathon a food hackathon in San Francisco with the theme Nutrition for All. And the access issue was front and center, and it was so inspiring to see teams of young innovators. People had come from from UC Davis and Stanford and Berkeley and all around the Bay Area, technologists, developers, food people, people from the philanthropic sector, and they all got working on developing solutions and prototype products and businesses to address this nutrition for all. And like I said, a lot of it was focused on food access. We had experts there who had been uh, who had worked at the White House on the mm-hmm. Let's Move and Nutrition Policy Initiatives. We had people from Policy Link in Oakland that's uh, been at the forefront of moving policy for you know in the SNAP program and also in addressing food deserts. We had several large company representatives there who have been investing money from their companies and philanthropies in this issue. So again, I love it. I think I'm, I'm with you on that. And I just want to tell you that, you know, sort of from the front lines of the seeking the signals, you know, of change in the food system at the food business school, we see it, you know, we're not there yet, but, but the cultural consciousness is opening and Thank the you. next generation of leaders is, um, you know, getting activated. Will, that is great news, and I'm really excited about that. Thank you so much, Will and Sophie, for being with us. I wish we had another hour to go, uh, but we've got to wrap up. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.